Hi, this is the latest episode of the Emotion at Work podcast, where we get geekly excited about the world of emotion, credibility, deception in the workplace. Thanks very much for listening, and here comes tonight's episode. So welcome along to this uh, this edition of the Emotion at Work podcast and today I'm my geek is incredibly excited today. So part of what we want to do with the Emotion at Work podcast is introduce you know in, get to to chat with and interview a selection of business leaders, researchers and practitioners. And what we've got today is our first guest that spans two of those domains. So they're both a researcher and a practitioner. So we're going to get this is going to be a really interesting podcast from the perspective of finding out both what they think, but also what their research is telling them as well. So for today's podcast, I'd like to welcome along SJ Lenny. Good morning, SJ. Good morning. How are you? I'm very good. Good morning, you? Yeah, very well. Thank you very well indeed. Good. Um, yeah, very excited. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Geeks unite. Geeks, Love it. Geeks unite today. Um, <laughs> So I, I mentioned in my introduction then that you're both a researcher and a practitioner. Do you want to explain a bit more about kind of what I meant by that and give us a bit more? Yeah, yeah. certainly. So um, I'm presently I'm a PhD doctoral uh, student at Manchester Met uh, University. Um, my uh, thesis is on emotional inauthenticity, and I'm looking at the psychological impact of emotional labour on police officers. How that comes about is I'm actually a police officer as well. So I've been a police officer for 15 years, um, serving in Hampshire Constabulary and more luckily in Greater Manchester Police. Um, I had quite a successful career. I was on their Solaris Promotion Scheme. Um, I'd worked in a variety of roles and I was working as a detective inspector in South Manchester, um, which is when I realised I was suffering with my own mental health. Okay. anxiety, PTSD and stuff, and in response to the kind of crime that you'd expect in um, South Manchester, gang violence, gun crime, all, all the sorts of stuff, mm-hmm. but it was quite a surprise to me when I realised that I was struggling significantly, mm-hmm. um, and so much so that I had to make a decision, a very difficult one, to step away from my career and um, reassess what I was going to do. It's this point that um, I... Um, spoke to my colleagues about how I was feeling and I, I kind of got that reflected back to me that they were pretty um, distressed themselves, suffering themselves mentally, um, similar to a greater or lesser extent as I was, but right. nobody spoke about it at all. Yeah. Nobody dealt with their emotions, nobody acknowledged them, it was very stoic, um, it was nothing, it was unacceptable to discuss how you're feeling, despite the obvious that this is very distressing, exceptionally distressing work involved long hours, um, contact with um, very traumatised victims and perpetrators as well. Um, and I, I really, it really, it really hit home how I just didn't think that, <laughs> from an organisational perspective, it was a particularly clever way of going forward mm. uh, and getting the best out of your employees. And on an individual basis, I just didn't think it was acceptable. And I thought there were probably, I suspected, better ways of dealing with this. Um, so that motivated me to go back to university. I did a master's in human resource management um, at Manmet. Did a dissertation under um, the work psychology unit, looking at emotions and burnout in the place. And that's what led me to my PhD and my passion to change how organisations and society um, kind of 
view and discuss emotions and raising awareness around the importance of being able to acknowledge your emotions and deal with the tricky things in life because the solutions I feel are quite simple but it seems to be like trying to climb Everest to get to them so that's where I am in a very long sentence <laughs> so there, oh, there's so much in there that I want to add that, that, I, <laughs> that I'd like to, to ask more questions on which, which we will um and, and I think part of the reason that I'm so excited about today is, you know, you and I both share a, a huge determination to change, uh, to change the narrative around emotions in, in the workplace um, and, and the way that emotions are talked about and dealt with and worked with um, and all those sorts of things. And, and we're, we're coming at it from, I think, two quite different backgrounds, but with a really similar and, and aligned kind of goal behind that. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Which is really good, and, and, and yeah, so yeah, super excited about today. Um, so I'd like to begin kind of near the, where you started, in terms of you saying that you know your your area of interest now, at the moment, for your research point of view, is emotional inauthenticity. Now I'm I'm really intrigued by that as a as a title. So what made you choose sort of that as a as a as a as a frame to put around your research? What what or what do you, and or what do you mean by emotional inauthenticity? That was a rubbish question. Let me try again. <laughs> what do you mean by emotional inauthenticity? Um, what I mean stems, and I, I, I will always come back talk from two perspectives, my mm. personal experience um, and my research and academic angle. So when I talk about emotional inauthenticity, I'm reflecting on how as a employee in the organisation as a police officer, I know that I hid my emotions and almost to extend I hid my personality, my sensitivity to um, traumatic incidents and how I empathised with people. Um, and it also spans from um, my research and I focus on emotional labour, which is part of my title. And that looks, emotional labour um, is a construct from Marley Hothschild developed in 1983 and she identified feeling rules which have been more latterly um, developed into display rules mm -hmm. and these are implied rules around um, what the organization expects as part of an unwritten contract that you will display um, so she was looking at flight attendants they, they were expected to always be happy and um, despite what was said with them and what they were dealing with they were going to be happy and you know the customers always writing with a smile on their faces and they suffered quite a bit with this. Um, so the authenticity comes from that, my own experience of actually hiding my emotions. Mm. And um, the research that looks about how we, we are expected to on behalf of the organisation and how the devices that we employ to hide those emotions, so like surface acting and deep acting, are the two devices that Arlie Hothschild um, talks about. And that's how I explore how we fake emotions and what emotions we deal with and suppress within policing mm. through the concept of acting and deep acting and emotional regulation and dissonance. So, so emotional labour then um, mm -hmm. is is that is that the the is that the process that happens like inside people? So that's what they what individuals do within themselves to well, uh, to or. It's, or Sorry, it's two things, so sorry, <laughs> getting overexcited now. Um, <laughs> it's, it's two things. So, as I was, I was quite alluding to, as I was realizing how long my answer was, um, is employers as such have um, two options of how to engage with the feeling rules, and this is what makes up the emotional labor. 
So the person said it was surface acting, and this is where this is it's an external display of the um, emotion. So saying being happy, you can be display happiness, smile, open gestures, cut eye contact, where internally you can still feel saying you're having a bad day, or maybe you're depressed, but you're hiding this by faking and acting out, actioning out what people would normally expect as a happy emotion, mm -hmm. so you may not feel it. Then there's deep acting. And this is where um, employees can try and modify, modify their internal emotion, try and manipulate their feelings so they actually are in line with the requirements. Um, this is really interesting in the scope of police work because a lot of the previous research hasn't focused on police work and says that you know internal regulations of deep acting can actually be helpful for well-being and mental health. That all depends on which emotion you're internally regulating. Okay. So if you're a police officer and you're trying to internally regulate empathy for somebody that's significantly stressed, talk about uh, rape victims or the family of somebody that's died in tragic circumstances, it can be quite distressing. So the emotional labour is how we choose to um, comply with the feeling and display rules. And it's so complicated depending on the emotion and how you engage with them as to what impact that can have on you psychologically. And, and, and I guess um, the the context will, will then shape what you know what the the degree to which the display rules and or the feeling rules apply. So if display rules are this is what I can show at the moment, you know this is what I can display. Whereas the feeling rules is more this is how I'm you know, this is how I'm expected slash permitted to feel. You know these are the emotions that I'm allowed or. Mm -hmm. you know, so therefore, I will. I'm, I'm going to choose the deep acting approach to to change. So I might be. I might be. I might have a particular emotion triggered, but I'm going to change that and change it to something else because that's what's okay for me to do. I'm guessing that yeah. the the context will change the the degree to which they happen. So I know. So for example, um, a lot of work was was done around um, display rules. So in in emotion expression research, there was some really interesting work done. When, when cultural, when universality of um, emotional expression, so when Paul Edmund did his research into the what are called the seven universals, so happy, sad, anger, disgust, fear, surprise, contempt, mm -hmm. looking at the the extent to which um, those when those emotions are experienced, what they look like on the face. So one yes. of the challenges was then, okay, well, are they are those expressions universal? Um, and initially, when research was done in Asian cultures, there was questions asked about well, actually they don't appear to be present. But then there's one study in particular where um, uh, people were shown a film either in the presence of, people in an Asian culture were shown a film either in the presence of others or on their own. And when others were present, they would manage the display of the emotion on their face. Whereas when people, others were absent, the emotion would show fully, if that makes sense. So yeah. in, in, the, in the, where I'm going with this then is, so in mm -hmm. the police force, were there, were there any context where where those rules were relaxed. So for example, if you were just with your sergeant or with your inspector, you know, on, on a one-to-one -one type basis, were the, were, the display, were the rules any different there versus when you were say in, you know, with your peers or with your colleagues? This is a really interesting point. And this is probably um, something that I find is significantly impacted. So 
you would anticipate the feeling of display rules and police officers to exist at a scene. So when you have a police officer attending a scene, so with a member of the public, yeah. victims, witnesses, um, grief parties, perpetrators, you would expect those rules to exist and exist in a very formal sort of sense, which most members of the public, anybody in society could anticipate and um, take control to suppress emotion, don't get upset. Mm. Um, and I, you know, I don't think we can ever change that, and that's the way it should be. My fascination, interest, concern is how these rules permeate throughout an officer's lives and all their relationships. So as you quite rightly said, um, how do they deal with emotion with their peers, their colleagues? Now, bearing in mind that research shows that um, social support from peers who experience similar or same trauma is the best support for moderating PTSD symptoms. Um, however, these feeling rules still apply when it comes to peers and colleagues, so they're still not allowed to express emotion. The only emotion that is permissible, it would appear, within the organisation is anger. Okay. Very odd. Otherwise, it's no emotion. So they're not allowed to talk about emotions exist, um, having emotions, feeling distressed. Fear is completely unacceptable as a conversation. just okay. doesn't exist. Yeah. You, you will you manipulate, if we're talking deep acting, you will manipulate your um, fear into anger, particularly out on the street to deal with something. Obviously, you can't show fear when you're dealing with an angry man. Yeah. Um, so they, that's how, and a lot of this answers a lot of questions about um, police aggression. Uh, it, it's, it's a lot of fear that's coming out. But this permeates into relationships with colleagues, as I said, but also supervisors. The rules apply here as well. Because it's police officers perceive that the emotion rules, and this emotional regulation, this requirement to suppress and not have feelings, um, is um, an unofficial uh, performance indicator. So if okay. you're stoic and you don't show a display emotion, you, you come across as completely unaffected, then you're a, you're a good egg and you're reliable and you're resilient and, you, you know, you're a good body. But if you show emotion, you're weak and you're not up to the job. Literally the words of the police officers, if you show emotion, you're not up to the job. You need to get another job. Quite brutal. What um, concerns me even further is it goes out of the organisation and into relationships with spouses partners, families, and um, social groups. Mm. And I've become interested in this from, so the, there's two different aspects there, spouses and partners and family, police officers who are either married to other police officers, so the rules apply. Oh, okay, yeah. Or they're not, and they are, their spouses, partners, families are members of the public to need protecting so either way, because they will, I'll take it back to me. So my research is audio diary, so I deal a lot of narrative of people yeah. just telling me how they feel. My husband didn't sign up for this. They're not a police officer. They don't want to know distressing circumstances of what I've dealt with today. My wife doesn't need this. I can't talk to them. They won't understand. These are the mm. things that said to me. So there's this continued suppression for whatever reason, but then you go into society and their social group and their friends, and they're police officers again, they're viewed as police officers in a public setting. Yeah. So they'll go on a night out and they say, there's a fight over there, you're going to deal with it. <laughs> you know, the yeah. body's like, oh, really? And it, there's, I'm interested in the literature, uh, you know, fictional literature and film, and the perpetuation of the burnt-out cop, um, yeah. the hard-boiled policeman, you know, how it has entered the public psyche that 
police officers should suppress emotion, that this is how they are, that it's acceptable that they suppress emotion, that their marriages fail and that they end up drinking and getting older before their time and dying young. Um, but it exists. So these feelings, as you quite right say, are they permissible in different places? Well, there are some emotions that are permissible, so to be quite anger. Um, but the rules seem to apply throughout their lives and there are very few openings for police officers. If they, they speak about, sometimes if they're with a colleague, they've been with for like, say, 18 months, mm -hmm. they've got to know him, they trust him, they don't think they're trying to gain you know, a promotion. There's a lot of um, work at the moment about identifying well-being and um, what we've done to help somebody else's mental health. So people tend to be a bit suspicious of each other if they're going for promotions. Are you going to use me as an example in your interview? Oh, really? So, yeah, so it takes a long time to build trust with people. Um, but that is the only time that they'll actually possibly lose to opening up a little bit. They might say, mm, that was a bit hairy there, wasn't it? <laughs> That's it. That's fear. <laughs> That's the expression of fear. Okay. So it's fascinating. And the whole thing just adds to this trauma that's experienced. So, because there's a few things in that, that that I find really, really interesting. So, from a from a non-police setting, then, so mm -hmm. I, I get I, I'm I'm really fascinated by the the role that identity plays in the workplace. Yeah. Um, you know, my my background is much more of a corporate setting than yours, and yeah. so you know, often people will talk about, um, well, not often. I've heard people talk about like, like there's a home me and there's a work me. Yes. Um, also, I, I hear people talk about, you know, leaving organisations so they can reinvent themselves in a new one. So mm -hmm. when they're in a company, they've been bound by, you know, they're bound by their history and their background and the experience they've had as an individual in that organisation and the roles that they've done. And when they move to a new organisation, they, they kind of get set free in, in response to that. Um, but also I, I hear people talk about different versions of themselves in, in different interactions that they have with different people. Um, mm -hmm. and, and the... The delineation of um, identity according to context is yeah. something that, that I, I get really fascinated by. So there's a lady called Helen Spencer Oti, who's at the University of Cambridge. And mm -hmm. what she's trying to do is to link, well, not she's trying to do, what she's doing in her research is she's starting to link together the more fundamental view of oneself as, as, as their identity with how that then plays out in their day-to-day -day interactions that they have at work so you've got someone like say Irving Goffman who was a sociologist from the sort of late 60s um, or 50s mm -hmm. 60s 70s who did a lot of research into the concept of face and the face being your the, your representation in a particular interaction um, mm -hmm. and normally and, and it's quite distinct in that that's the, the Goffmanian view as to the, the face is the version of you that you're bringing to that interaction and, and people don't really link it back to identity and that's what Helen Spencer is trying to do is to say well actually we you know if that is the version of yourself that you're bringing to an interaction it's got to come yeah. from somewhere you know you've got to yeah. be bringing that from somewhere to bring it to that particular interaction so it's coming from that that's that identity that you've decided or given or, or negotiated or built for yourself mm -hmm. Um, which is going to be shaped by what's around you. And, and I suppose if I then link that back to what you were talking about just now, about when a police officer is in multiple contexts and, and in contexts yes. that have nothing to do with their work, so home, yeah. out with friends, so on and so on, that that identity is brought with them both by themselves yes. but also by other people that are around them. Yes. Wow. It's, 
identity is, um, and I struggle with this on a personal level because I'm on a career break at the moment, so I'm still a police officer, mm. and that forms and that's a very strong part of my identity. I was also brought up by two police officers, so it's very much part of me. And I think I've got to let that go at some point. And it's a conversation I've had with my supervisor on more than one occasion. I've got a few years yet before you know I consider whether I'm resigning or whatever, which will be that point. So, yeah. but I do think that you're very right. The identity police. It's, there's also a bit about self selection here. Why people join the police, what they identify, how they carry that. But you're quite right. Is that when you you learn when you first put on the uniform and you attend an incident, people look at you. And they stop seeing you. They see the uniform. They see what they believe a police officer to be. They impress certain expectations upon you. And you as a police officer, because a lot of the work you do is, I hate to say it, but manipulating other people's emotions to get them to comply with you. Mm -hmm. you, don't, you don't use aggression and force. You, you, all the time it's negotiation and manipulation and you know compromise and is that you try and be whatever it is that's in their eyes that they, they need you to be for them to do what is required at that time. So you start to morph into people's expectations to get the job done. And if you think about a shift for a police officer, say a 10-hour shift, yeah. and you're going to, say, at 20, 15 to 20 incidents maybe, different incidents, different concepts, different people, different requirements, different crimes, different social situations... You're constantly manipulating yourself, your identity, what people need, what you need to achieve here, and you're fluctuating. And it's, I think, the speed of the way that police officers are moving and defending themselves emotionally and moving in and out of these emotions and how they maintain a st static identity of the police officer is fascinating. And then, as, as I said before, it spills out into social um, life. Yeah. People, as soon as they know you're a police officer, and um, I see it when I say that to people, when I speak to them, they change a little, and they, they identify with you differently. So it is quite impressed upon you, the sense of identity as well, as well as being on duty 24 seven. Yeah. But yeah. I find the idea of different faces and that not being linked to identity, I don't know how it can't be, I think it, it is, it's your choice. To not be emotionally affected by something, not display an emotion, is an identity of choice because you're choosing to display an identity of this stoic nature. Mm. Of, you know, quite the past. Mm. Okay. Um, so I, I just want to sort of uh, pause a little bit for a second. And what I mean by that is earlier on you talked about the role of peers and peer support, yeah. particularly working through things like PTSD. Um, and one of my phrases that I work really hard to, to kind of catch myself on is where I say things like research suggests or research says. So, so you mentioned that earlier on. Um, yeah. Would you be able to not necessarily know the second, but to let me know so I can put in the podcast notes um, yes. some links to, to, to where so if people wanted to go to read to find out more about who did that research then they, yeah, could, then they could go and find it if that's would that be okay yeah no that's fine yes cool. thank you in All fact right. I could probably do it within a couple of seconds but yeah yeah no I will do yes yeah, so, well I don't mind if, if we if we capture it as we speak then that's fine people can just write it down themselves they can go away and, yeah. and, and find it um I just want to make sure that you know, we we give people we give listeners the opportunity yeah, to go and find absolutely. some stuff, which is why I was particularly talking about, say, Hannah Spencer eighties research, so that so that people that are listening can go and find that you know they can go and find some of the um, 
some of the stuff that if they want to do some more reading then they can yeah certainly cool thank you um so sticking with the emotional inauthenticity just for a minute because one other thing that it, it sparks for me is is a and i guess i'm i might even be being a little bit playful here in mm-hmm. in in an institution where often the police are trying to find the truth yes i find it interesting that there's there's a, there's this there's there's a bucket there's then a bucket load of deception that's going on granted it could be self-deception but it, you know yeah so it's it, it, it poses an interesting yeah it's, it's a very good point isn't it it's gosh the games that we play um mm. yeah i think it's self-deception i have to be honest with you yeah okay um but is the organization compliance in it do you think so does because does it make life easier for the institution or for the or the, for the particular police force to allow or, or, or to be obliv- or to ignore obliv- or be oblivious to that. Um. Um, it's very difficult because I say the rules are more implied than they are explicit. explicit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so without wanting to delve too much into culture, because that's a massive area. Yeah. It is a cultural issue. I think a lot of the problem is I've been looking at dissociation recently. Mm. Um, as a psychological output of um, emotional suppression and dealing with trauma and how trauma is dealt with. And there's, there's, um, you know, it's clear that, well, look at research, Bernstein and Putman um, have done quite a lot of work on this. Mm. Um, And they're not the only ones in the area. Again, I can give you so many references. Um, But not processing trauma pretty soon after a traumatic event and suppressing emotion leads to high levels of dissociation and I've just done a piece of research on this. Mm. Um, what I think part of the problem is you talk about the organisation being complicit in it is that all police officers go through the ranks, they're all do- you know, indoctrined into this culture and taught this as a coping mechanism. Okay. So all police officers will learn to cope with what they see through the norms of their colleagues. So you go onto a team and nobody talks about the emotion, um, they suppress it, so you may see something that's distressing, but you see that your colleagues aren't even flickering as an emotional recognition, and you learn to do this too. Mm. And once you start suppressing emotion and you start getting into levels of dissociation, which are, it would appear from a research, pretty prevalent, um, you don't learn, you know, you're not recognising emotions, you're accepting it as a social norm. So I don't know how well recognised it is within the organisation about what is actually happening within, mainly because it's so accepted, but also because the people that you may consider should be in charge and should identify and deal with it, are probably suffering themselves from dissociation mm. and therefore can't. So it's, it's tricky. It's really tricky. Yeah, I can imagine it's really tricky, actually. Um, because the, the need to... Yeah. The, it's I don't, difficult. I don't There's need a need to protect yourself. And because the, what they're dealing with is constant, there's a constant need to protect. And dissociation is a way of protecting it is a coping mechanism in itself, but it's the continuation of it. But if there's no letter, 
or there's no built-in system or time for people to step aside and say, okay, let's process this trauma, move on and be a healthy individual. They will stay in a state of dissociation and depersonalization and derealization. Um, and particularly people that are in senior ranks, they will successfully employ this as a coping mechanism. Um, so they're not necessarily going to want to change or know to change, mm. which is why I want to do the research and kind of like open up options and try and... My first point about my research is identifying this and bringing it to the forefront and explaining it and showing it in different ways. So I'm very keen on emotional narrative and authenticity, yeah. authentic narrative and getting the spoken word um, and then relating that to psychological outcomes so that I can say, look, you know, this is a thing that's here. Well, it's not just culture. It's not just a something in the mist that we can't kind of touch. It's yeah. something here, and it's having an impact. And then looking at okay, so how are we going to deal with this? And trying and getting people to acknowledge its existence. Yeah, it's quite tough. Yeah, I can imagine it's tough, um, and, and also could potentially be a tough argument, or, or you know, we could. Because it's challenging, because it is potentially going to challenge the the cultural and organisational norms. Then, um, mm -hmm. it, it might be something that is difficult for people to accept as well. In that way, I, I could imagine people being quite scared of. Mm -hmm. Okay, suddenly we 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 want they they want feeling empathetic police officers because we know that officers that can empathise will do such a fantastic job in the streets because they'll deal with people better. They provide a service that the public really deserves. Um, but I can see that the fear side of that is, is it's very painful for people when they're empathising, when they're emotionally open and aware and experiencing. If you think about all the things they go to, mm. there's going to need a lot of psychological support and a lot of coping mechanisms put in place. And I can see that the organisation will be quite scared en masse doing that because you would end up with quite a lot of traumatised people that need help. But I do think there's a way through it. I'm not saying there isn't. I think that, like I say, social support is exceptionally important. Mm. And there's small things that can be done. But it's, it's a massive step. Yeah, because you, you've potentially got a threat. You know, so yeah, fear fear is um, is in response to a threat of harm, which often mm -hmm. in a police setting is a, is, is a physical one. You know, it's a very real physical yeah. threat to physical harm. Um you know, both to yourself or your colleagues or to the public or, or, or whoever that might be. But equally as valid is when you perceive a threat to your psychological self, you know, when you perceive a threat yeah. to your sense of identity or your uh, your sense of well-being or how you're perceived by the by others or by, mm -hmm. um, you know, others or peers that are around you, whether that be friends or family or, or colleagues or whoever that is. Um, you know, that, that fear will come in in the same way. You know, as soon as you perceive that threat of harm, then, then fear will, will happen. You know, so... Yeah. I think it was this, no, it wasn't this week, it was last week. I was you know, chatting with an individual who was recalling a, an occasion where they were sat in a team meeting and, and the leader of the team made a comment about a particular project. And, and you know, it just sent fear running through them because they, even though the individual hadn't been named because the project had been named and they'd been part of the project, there was a, you know, they picked up on a threat to their credibility or their performance yes. and their ability yes. or their competence, I should say, probably, um, in, in in doing their job. Uh, and, and it was a very real sense of, you know, are they talking about me? And then 
they were unable to pay attention for you know yes. 30 seconds a minute two minutes afterwards because they were caught in the grip of that are they talking about me what have i done what have i missed what ball have i dropped you know why are yeah. we talking about this now and you know, there's it just you know creates that that emotional yeah, and fear is fear, no yeah. matter the stimulant. I mean, police officers would be um, afraid from a... Well, the whole thing is the, the emotional suppression is a reputational fear. Um, yeah. A fear of being seen as bad as their job because they're emotional. Yeah. And that's just as strong, if not stronger, than the fear of, you know, being stabbed or physically harmed. In fact, possibly more because the problem with Boku is handled. You know, if I get physically injured more than my reputation or you're not good at your job because of that threat to identity as you quite have to say which is intrinsic to us so fear is fear no matter no matter the stimulant mm. and, and I, I also think for a lot of the things that, that you've been talking about there in terms of the um, the display rules the feeling rules and, and the surface and the deep acting and the cultural norms um, whilst we've been grounding it in, in the police I think it also translates across to to organisational life um, yeah, if I think about the work of Brené Brown, so um, the popularity in, in kind of corporate leadership world of Brené Brown's work around vulnerability and um, you know, what she said, she started with the vulnerability and then she went to shame um, and, and the, the popularity of that's grown massively in, in the corporate sector. Um, yeah. But from my practical experience, um, I don't see it permeating out you know, and actually really changing the narrative. You know, the mm -hmm. um, yeah. if I think about the, there was a piece on the news, I think it, I it was right earlier this week, where the, the CEO of Uber was captured on a um, on a camera. So the cabbie had a camera in his cab to make sure, you know, to record. Um, uh, so an Uber cabbie had a camera in his cab to record passengers. So in case anything happened, you know, if it, there was disagreements on fare or um, so on. And it captured the... Mm -hmm. The CEO of Uber being verbally aggressive to the driver in the car, um, and it took a few, yeah, it took a couple of days or sort of thirty-six hours, I think it was, and, until he went publicly online and, and issued a, you know, an um, uh, an unreserved apology of, you know, what I screwed up, and I need to get some help because what I did was inappropriate, um, and that's really rare, you know, really, really yes. rare for somebody senior within an organisation to 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 fess up, I suppose, in that way, because the the desire or the perceived need to maintain your credibility is, you know, it's just a fascinating one and it, and it affects so many different things. Well, I, I think if you take it out beyond the context of um, policing, which is a, an extreme context, I would say, but you're looking at um, into what is a, a, a patriarchal society that's um, being strong being the top of your game, being competitive, um, the capitalist fight to be the top and constantly grow, um, to suppress emotion in an environment that's emasculated, it's, um, it's everywhere you can't be seen to say, I made a mistake, because that's a weakness. Mm. We don't do weakness. Um which is why emotions aren't acceptable because we think emotions are weaknesses too. Um, and it's such a shame because there can be such strength. Again, empathy comes into this. There's such strength from identifying yourself as being a human being yeah. and not being perfect. And that's, more CEOs need to acknowledge that because 
for your employees to be comfortable, to be happy, to be creative, they need to be able to make mistakes and be human. And they're the ones that give permission for this. But um, it's not just organisations, it's society. It's prevalent with any um, area of society. Yeah, but I also think there's 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 a there's a load of politeness rules that stick up that, that kind of come in with it as well. So um, I remember I was walking through Chiswick, probably about I don't know, I can't remember when, a year ago, maybe maybe more. And there was a lady walking down the street, and she was just really upset, you know. So she was, mm-hmm. um, you know, quince, you know. Prototypical face expression of sadness, inner corners of the eyebrows raised, lip corners pulled down, um, uh, you know, bottom lip quivering. And she walked past about, and I was walking towards her, and I saw must have been at least 15, if not 20 people look up, recognize it, and then and then walk off. Yeah. Um, because, you know, there's a, I think there's some, there's some politeness rules around going up and, and approaching the, you know, somebody saying, Are you okay? So me being me broke all those rules, um, hey. and, and, and you know stopped. Into, well, I, I kind of got up to her, and then I, rather than stopping her, I turned around and walked alongside her and said, "You know, I, I noticed that you it looks like you're a bit upset. Are you okay? Is everything all right?" Um, and she said, yeah, "Yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine." And I said, "Are you sure? I just want to make sure, you know want to make sure that you're okay." And she said, "Yeah, I'm fine. I just kind of need to be on my own for a bit." And I thought, "Well, I'll, I'll leave you alone because it's none of my business." You know. That, uh, yeah, but you've you done know. such a good thing there. Well, thank you. Um, but I think it's the 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 politeness rules that, that are present within the UK, as an example, I think also yeah. reinforce that um, that kind of norm around... Actually, I feel quite uncomfortable. With, I, feel, I feel uncomfortable with someone walking down the street displaying their emotion in the way that they are. I feel yes. uncomfortable with that, and I, and I don't... And, and you know, and my my way of working with it is I'm going to ignore it as opposed to doing something with, um, with or about it. I, th- I think this is a really important point. I think as Brits, you quite rightly identified, we are quite emotionally suppressed, quite stoic. It's not natural for us, and we do get embarrassed, don't we? We don't know how to deal because we're not brought up to deal. We're brought up, and certainly I was, to suppress emotion. Um, and this is why, for me, I'm really interested in. I don't believe that findings my research that I'm going to do in the UK will be uh, generalizable to other uh, countries because every different country has different rules about yeah, uh, emotional display. So that in itself will impact society, natural order of things will impact the police and how they deal with it because we work to what society expects of us and will impact organizations. And it brings me back to your point about you're talking in Asia about um, what emotions were displayed. Um, for me, I, I look at words and how we express ourselves verbally, I would suggest, um, mainly. And I'm interested in how different cultures have different numbers of words for different emotions. There are some words that we don't even or some emotions we don't even have words for in yeah. English. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that in itself just shows how society's, as you say, politeness or comfortable, how comfortable we are with emotion translates literally um, from culture to culture. So I do think you're right. There is a politeness about, um, or an uncomfortableness and embarrassment on the works, I think, about being able to express emotions. 
um, which, as you say, you know, the society sort of pressure for everything to be okay. And we've been talking a lot about sort of fear and, well, fear and anger, I suppose, have been the dominant two. But I even see that with things like pride and um, mm. and, and appreciation and praise. You know, there's, um, there's a company called OC Tanner, and I know a couple of folk there, Rob Ordover's one and Dawn Smedley's another. And, you know, they, their whole kind of business model is around um, appreciation and recognition, not, and, and all through a non-financial means. Um, and the... Uh, the level of discomfort that I see in individuals when they initially start to do this stuff is, is you know, really big. So I, I did a piece of work with a group of 60 kind of senior leaders within a retail UK retail organisation. And I gave them, it was a kind of part of a classic leadership development thing. But one of the things that I did is I, I, put, I, I allocated an hour, I think it was an hour and 15 minutes in the agenda for appreciation. So I started off by, I probably took about 15 minutes of that, sort of setting some context around why I think appreciation is important, what, how, you, you know, how you can do it. And, and, and I set some, I framed it very specifically and set some rules around it. Um, and then I said, right, you've got an hour now to show appreciation to others. Now, there could be other people in this room. So they could be your peers, they could be your managers, but they could also be people that aren't in this room. So they could be members of your team um, or other people within wider parts of the organization. But you've got an hour now to go and um, share some appreciation with others of what it is. You know, and I was really clear. So this isn't like soft soaping stuff. This is, you know, when, so if, if you've got nothing that you, if you don't feel you have any appreciation to give them, that's fine. But likewise, you know, take some, we've given you an hour, take some time, think about it and do it. Um, and then after an hour, I was looking at the agenda and so on, and I wrapped the session up. And my one bit of feedback at the end of the day, or my one complaint at the end of the day was, why did you stop us? <laughs> yeah, we've we've never wow. done it before. It was amazing, and you stopped us. Why did you stop us? Um, and and I find it really, you know, it was a really fascinating thing because I only gave them an hour because I thought they'd feel really uncomfortable, and then I stopped it. They're like, no, you shouldn't have done that. You should have, we should, you know, we'd have preferred. I'd have, well, I'd say we. The individual said I'd have preferred it if you'd have let it run. And I said, well, that's great. So my challenge to you is, how do you do it outside of this room? So I've now yeah. given you a framework that allows you to do it. How do you do it outside of the room? Um, and also then in, in more general life you know part of my research was about analyzing performance reviews that happened in a corporate organization and the way that people gave praise was really weird you know so occasionally there was you know a very occasionally there was a very direct one which is you did this happened you did it really well well done thank you but there are other times where the the appreciation would be given by putting someone else down you know this person isn't very good at these things and thankfully i don't have to talk to you about them and i'm like what what, it, a, what an indirect way of saying you're good about something so rather that's than saying, so that's so power play isn't it that's fear creating i don't have to tell you that you're not bad but if you are you know <laughs> but i also oh. think i also think there was some record they, they were, the individual in, in question was trying to make themselves look better as a manager so they were trying to say yeah. your your peer isn't good at these things and i'm telling you that i know they're not good at these things so i'm i want you to know that i'm on top of that because i've got a note to talk to them um, I, I'm interested sorry. in that in so much the way that, that obviously the person that's delivering the performance review, bearing in mind this is meant to be about somebody else, not the manager, yeah. is bringing their own ego and and demonstrates a, a level of vulnerability and needs to be seen by the good employee as a good manager. Absolutely. 
Oh dear! I know it's fast. <laughs> it's fast, you know, and and it's fascinating stuff. And and the work. The I was about to say the worst thing is, and that's that's an inappropriate choice of language. The um, the bit that I missed in my research is, or the, my regret for my research is that I didn't go back and speak to the managers and the individuals that took part in my research to find out how aware they were of it. And or if they ascribe the same meaning that I as the researcher have ascribed, because in in this kind of research um, paradigm, there's two there's a there's two approaches. There's what's called the first order approach, which is where you use what's happening in the interaction to decide how people evaluated it. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that particular example, the uh, the individual that received the comments of you know, so the individual that was in the performance review that was made to say you're good at these things because this person is bad. They didn't respond in it. They didn't give any audible response other than a small laugh. So it's difficult to know how they evaluated it. So it, yes. they didn't. They didn't say thanks. So so I'm not. You know. So I don't know if they. I don't know if they accepted it or not. They left. They left it am, ambiguous about whether they. So the feedback loop doesn't really. They're not getting much feedback on it. So they didn't say. They didn't voice an inappropriate or a dissent, but they also didn't mm-hmm. voice a recognition or an assent either. So. Um, so it's really difficult to know. So the first order approach is where you you look at what's happened. The second order approach is when the you as the as the researcher who understands the context or the community of practice you ascribe kind of meaning to it or potential meaning yeah. to it, which is what I've done. But the bit that I think I missed would, was the opportunity to go back to the individuals that took part in the research and say, when this happened, how did you interpret that? Or or as you listen back to it now, how do you interpret? Because part of me wonders is actually am I making it a deal when actually it isn't a deal that's so interesting I'm just doing a bit at the moment on the the role of research and reflexivity particularly in quality research and looking at case study and stuff Uh, and transference in particularly in psychological social psychological research is it's such a problem isn't it Um, yeah I can see I mean that is important to check back and see is this a thing or is it just a thing because I think it should be a thing? Yeah. Yeah, I understand that. Yeah, totally. It would be interesting to know, wouldn't it? Yeah, it would. And, and, and the challenge is, you know, that I captured the data two years ago now, so mem- memory will, will be fallible enough yeah. for, for people to go, I don't know, I can't remember how I felt then. Um, so when, when it comes to doing more research, that's a, a key learning for me in terms of how do I, um, how do I get that um, that perspective and, and even then I, I won't necessarily know for sure that was how they felt I'm you know all I will yeah. know is what they're telling me about how they felt which I, I think interesting also is um what do they accept what's what are their feeling rules about what's acceptable mm. and have they are they like no that's fine that's 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 what happens you know if they've not really looked at it can they identify themselves that you know stepping back oh that's not really that acceptable yeah so it's, it's a, complicated it, it is and, 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 th- and this is where, and I, I've, oh, I'm like, I'm like, I can feel the soapbox being presented and me standing up. <laughs> uh, but this is where I, I get really frustrated by a, a lot of the work in and around emotion and, and or emotional intelligence, where people talk about self awareness, and 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 it's used as a, for me, it's used as like a throwaway term. Um, and well, you, you know, are they just not very self-aware is something I, I hear regularly or they just need yeah. to work on their self-awareness. I'm like, do you, but do you not, that, that is like a, it's a monumentally big thing, self-awareness. You know, it's, it's something that takes, as you said earlier on, it takes reflection, it takes reflexivity, it takes um, effort and energy and, and, 
and and it, I get frustrated that it's almost used as a like a throwaway um, a throwaway. Uh, yeah, something that that sounds to me like how and if you're talking in an organisational culture, yeah, I am. Yeah, uh, how yeah how resilience is used as a term. It certainly in the police, I see it as a bar to be measured against. Uh, uh, unrealistically, you're either resilient or you're not. You're either self-aware or not, and you're not. You're not good enough. Well, as you say, to be self, truly self-aware, and who is? You have to understand your upbringing, the contributions into your psychology, what traumas you may have experienced and not processed, which you know, create this amazingly complex mind map, and then introduce yourself into a culture that you may not necessarily understand it. Only you have a perception of through your senses, which are tainted by your own personal experience. Um, to be, oh God, I don't know. I don't know if we could ever be truly self-aware to the point where we extrapolate all those problems and understand them. I mean, Freud and Jung spent years trying to do that, and you know whether they eventually ever attained true, total self-awareness. I don't know if we can. No, I don't know either. But it's yeah, it's not an open thing. <sighs> <laughs> I think like, I'm sorry, consciously incompetent at that level. <laughs> I know I don't know myself well enough. <laughs> and, and and I think there's a, a, a one of the I had a thought earlier on which um, I didn't share at the time, but feels more feels okay to call well, contextually okay to share now. Um, so when you were talking about the um, when I asked you around how complicit is the um, is the organisation or the institution of the police in in what's happening, and it made me wonder actually is there a degree of organisational self awareness or institutional self awareness that happens there? So if you've got, um, you know, if you've got a, if the institution is made up of people that have learnt this implied um, cultural norm or these implied rules around what you can show and how you can feel. Um, it could be that, that, that there is a complete lack of awareness that this is actually a, a thing and it's only because of your experience. Um, and I, I know you're not alone. I know there are other um, people within the, the institution of police doing it as well. But through your your own personal experience, you've then gone, hang on a minute, this is a thing. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I, I think so. And I think I suffered, particularly being brought up by police officers, of not understand, not I, I can talk about mental health and I cared very deeply about it and I cared very deeply about my colleagues, my DCs, people, my teams around and underneath and the people I was there to protect as such within the organisation and look after. I don't think unless you do have that wake up moment where you are really poorly and you go, oh my God, what has been going on here? I think it's very difficult to have that level of awareness when, and this is, I toyed for a while about bystander syndrome as whether that was what was going on in the organisation, because I just couldn't get why people weren't going, hang on a minute, this is a bit weird, isn't it? Why are we all stood here not feeling anything when this tragically difficult things are happening? Um, so I do think that organisationally there's not that, that, I think it's growing, as you quite rightly said, other people are working in the area, there's more wellbeing stuff that's going on, but I don't know how really that is an understanding, but at least it's a step in the right direction. Yeah. I don't I, I think it's difficult on an individual and an organizational level to have this awareness when you are completely submersed within a culture. It's difficult to see it and see your part within it. It's it's, it's all pervasive, particularly when Police officers, as I've said before, don't step outside of it. It continues into their home. It continues into society. They yeah. never step outside of this culture. It's expected from every angle and impressed upon them. So, um, 
Yes, I'm not about to say the organisation's bad in any sense because I just don't think that they can be found culpable then or a victim of their own circumstances. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that translates across to to a, to, to wider organisational slash, you know, well, different aspects of life, whether that be work or home. You know, when when you're in something, it's really hard to see you know, to, to use a, a, an old adage, it's hard to see the wood for the trees when you're in it. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm aware of a number of people that I interact with who, when they look back on a, on their time in a particular place, they were like, wow, how, how did I, how did I do that there? You know, how did I cope in that kind of context or that environment? Or how did I work with this or that or the other? Um, but because you're in it, it's just the norm. You know, it, it, it just, it, yeah. is, it is what it is. Um, and working with it is, is, is hard. So I, I think, um, in terms of where I'd like to take the conversation next, then so mm-hmm. within we've talked about the you, you know your context of the police in particular, yeah. But I also and I also um, recognise that there's an awful lot of um, reports, both in the media and, and, and wider coverage and in research around the state of, of mental health within the the corporate world or within the world yeah. of work. Um, so what I want to sort of get us thinking now is around what what either hints or tips or advice or suggestions could we give <clears throat> either individuals for, for themselves in terms of how you know, if they feel like they're um, they're suffering and they might be on, on a way to, to burn out or on, on the journey to that or for practitioners that can help others so they might be coaches or they might be hr professionals those sorts of things so yeah. what, what advice or hints or tips do you think we could give to to the people that are listening to to help them work with some of these things and some of the stuff that we've talked about over the course of our discussion so far um right this is this is where my research eventually hope i will end is what interventions can we do with organize and i mean all organizations yeah. Um, so, tips for HR practitioners, organisations. Um, so, there's a couple of things. I think um, the way we are with productivity and the hours that we work in the UK, we seem to think being sat at a desk um, is an indication of productivity. No, no, it's not true. We are so low on productivity, but high on hours. Is we need to give people space, time. We need to allow them to walk away from their desks and do what it is that that individual needs to do to make them okay. Um, I think that's really important. And I think organisations need to take a deep breath and go, do you know what? I know this will make me more productive, even if I'm terrified of giving my staff this time. Because it is going to be organisational time mm. to give this to their, over to their mental health to make sure that they're well. Because it's a win situation for organisations. They're well, they're engaged. We know the story. They are productive, and we will do better as a country, as economically, as society. Um, so, being brave, not questioning them, trusting them to do what they need to do. Because coping with trauma and traumatic situations, whether that be fear of a loss of job or the pressure and stress of the deadline, everybody has an individual coping mechanism. If you're dealing with trauma specifically, mm-hmm. talking is um, so important. I'm just looking at some of my references here about, right, um, psychological trauma. Um, if you don't deal with it, that's when you need to post-traumatic stress disorder. And this can be anything in anybody's life. I know that a lot of organisations 
won't interact with the nasty side of life like police does. But these mm. happen to normal everyday people and they will go through traumatic life experiences, whether it be divorce, death of a loved one, yeah. a serious illness, whatever it is. And organisations need to support, so HR needs to be able to support people. And in that, it's that time and it's getting people to talk. And um, that has to be acceptable within the organisation. Mm. So whether it's providing um, peer support networks, so people you can go to and talk to in confidence, if you don't feel that you can openly ask for psychological support, providing areas like that. Um, providing space and time, and in fact, enforcing it, because a lot of people won't voluntarily engage with um, well-being and psychological support mental health programs through fear of stigma. So you can't set somebody up and expect people to go to it. When um, we dealt with um, tragic incidents within GMP that were quite significant, we set up, um, and I don't want to go into too much detail about that, Um, we set up counselling services, we put counsellors in police stations, we put open door policy, you can go and engage. Nobody went in because of the Mm. fear of walking through that door and the stigma. So you have to... Tell people, you go in this room, you sit down, have a cup of tea and talk. Talk about football if you want, or you can talk about something more fundamental. But there's going to be an element if you want culture change, is forcing people down a tunnel. They can use it how they want, but give them the space, you know, give them... Is it the Swedish who have the time where, you know, 11 o'clock every day, everybody stops, everybody has a cup of tea and slice of cake if they want. Okay. And everybody talks. Um, there's a lot of talk around, you know, the old tea trolley and stuff like that. People used to have an enforced break, so they would walk away from the screen, very good health and safety, but also it gave people an opportunity to do, without being pressured, to have a conversation if they wanted to about the situation, because it's going to be their peers that can do best. Mm. So I would say that organisations need to look at stop putting fruit on the table and doing something quite fundamental and radical and taking a deep breath and not being afraid of giving time back their employees to allow them to support themselves. Oh, God, soapbox moment. Right. I was going to say for the individual, do you want to, I think, God, you know, I, so I've been doing some research on behalf of my supervisors. Uh, mm. I mentioned this earlier about looking at stress experts and how they deal with stress. So academics that research the area of stress and resilience, mental health, and how they personally cope with it. And we'll go back to self-awareness, but knowing, knowing your triggers, knowing what's important for you, knowing when you're not quite so well, knowing where your cut-off point is, and knowing how to, I, A, identify it, B, communicate it to the people that need to know in a way that you're comfortable with, then finding your own personal coping mechanisms. Meditation is massively good. Yoga, fitness, exercise. Or just reading a book or um, going into nature, find something beautiful, removing yourself from circumstances. There are so many different things and it's such an individual thing. And also triggers are individual. Mm. One person's stressor is nothing to another person, but they will be stressed by something else. Me and my husband are completely different. He, he will get stressed about shopping, those sorts of things. And I get stressed about deadlines, you know. It's, yeah. But the other doesn't get stressed about, you know, it's where 
completely different in that level, but we both suffer in the same way when we do get stressed. Um, and there's no denying how that feels, no matter what we trigger. Yeah. I'm done. Okay, wonderful. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so there's a couple of questions to, to finish off then. So, um, and they're about sort of your thoughts on, on where people can go next and where I should go next. So what I mean by that is um, I'll ask you in a minute for any recommendations of uh, books or articles or places for people to go to, to find out more. If they want to find out more around the topics we've been discussing, you know, where, where should they yeah. go? What, what can they go yeah. for? Um, but also I'm interested in, in who else do you think we should look to get on the podcast? So are there any other and they can, they could be business leaders oh. or they could be um, researchers or they could be practitioners um, or, or a combination of those three. Um, but, you know, who should we go and uh, who should we go and hunt out and, and find and say, SJ sent me because she said you'd be awesome for this. <laughs> right. OK. I'll have to think about a few. Um, my first one, I'm going to say, uh, I don't know whether you've made contact yet, my ex-dogs now, Anna Sutton. Okay. I think um, her research is really interesting into authenticity and identity. Okay. Um, who else would I know? I'm trying to think somebody corporate. Let me see, let me see. What were the other questions you had for me? Uh, books. Any any books or videos or recommended reading? Anything if, if people wanted to find out more, um, you know, they should... I would say read Managed Hearts by Arlie Child. Okay, so it's a, that's emotional labour. It's a dead good read. That's so articulate. It's a dead, dead That's good, good read. read. Yeah, it is. Um, she's really worth reading. She researches um, air hostess and bill collectors. Brits. Oh, okay. And... Um, so it's nothing stupid, please. It's nothing. It is proper corporate environment. It's in 1983, and um, she does this study, and she links that to burnout and how you know suppressing your emotions is really um, so bad for you. But they're positive emotions, so it's completely contrasting for anything that I do. But I use her concepts. Mm. But I think that for certainly HR managers and and anybody in, in corporate organisations, it helps you to understand how even forcing your um, employees to be smiley and happy all the time mm. can be so detrimental to their well-being and then their ability to work for you. So I think that's an important read. Okay. Very okay. important. So remind me, what was the book called again? The Managed Heart. The Managed Heart. Wonderful. By Arlie Fosterchild. Thank you. Fantastic. A bit of a Bible for me. Um, I, li I like it when somebody is, is really clear on what a book that would be really good to oh, read. Do like you know, one. she's brilliant. So I've got a background in art. So as I was a musician um, in the army before I, I ventured into the police. It's a long story. Um, <laughs> I So my A-levels were music and I also did theatre as well. So a bit of acting, hence my interest in, in service and deep, deep acting. acting. Yeah, yeah. So she talks a lot about Hamlet, she talks about Stanislavski and actual acting techniques as well throughout it. So she draws, and I do this in my research, I find it um, quite fascinating. So she draws on the arts, which plays into Jung. I right. would read Jung. And it, and it, pro it probably plays into Goffman as well then, because Goffman talks a lot about dramaturgy and, yes. um, and stage and self-presentation yes. and those sorts of things. And backstage and stuff. Yes, yeah. yes, yeah. absolutely. So it's another good read. Young, uh, there's a book called The Introduction to Young, and I think it's by a chap called Stevens. It's okay. really, it makes it easy to engage with. And 
I think that's a really psycho so, um, social psychological way of looking at things, how we are all linked in our terms of emotion and how we deal with things. That can get quite deep, but Okay. Well, what we'll do is we'll, we'll put links to both of those on <coughs> on the on the podcast notes. We'll put links yeah. to both of those, um, so we've got, um, so people can can go find them. Uh, and I'll try and do this from you know more than just Amazon, other you know web based book purchases. Well, I've also got a number of academic <laughs> journal articles that I've got the names of sat in front of me here. That you yeah, know, that'd be good. Like, I'll, I'll put those as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. good. But I'll just end up reading off a list of names. It will be meaningless. No, that's fine. We'll put we'll, them, we'll send them in the podcast notes. That's good. Yeah. Okay, so um, definitely go and hunt out Anna. Anyone else? Anyone else that we should um, that we should go and find? You think? Um, oh, see, a lot of people that I know are police based. Um, because that's who I follow. No, that's okay. Can I get Can I get back to you on that? There's a yeah, few people. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um. Yeah. No, that's good. Yeah, that's we'll uh okay is there my final question then in 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 a, in a very good uh nancy klein time to think style then is there anything else that you're thinking anything else that you're feeling anything else that you'd like to say before we bring it together and close i think i've probably not spoken enough about the importance of actually speaking emotions okay um so and i'll find all the references if i might have that next moment so, Actually being able to talk about your emotions is a significant moderator for dealing with those emotions. And not being able to name the emotions you're experiencing is a sign of mental distress. Mm. Um, practitioners, this is important because um, they're simple things, but they're really telling and really important. And I'll put some, I'll send you some links to that. But if you can't do anything else, um, if we don't have lots of money to bring in psychological support, we don't have lots of training, we don't have lots of time to give, nothing else, talking is possibly the most important and impactful um, tools for looking after our own mental health, looking after each other, creating that social community that's healthy and supportive. And that's what I'm trying to do. And what I found from my own personal experience of actually opening up to my colleagues and having them in return open up to me because I gave them, not necessarily gave them the power, but they weren't afraid once I opened up about how I felt to speak. So storytelling for me is so important. Tell your own story and other people will tell you theirs. And that's such a beginning in any organisation to getting a better picture to a healthy emotional world. Fab, wonderful. Um, I, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. So what, one of my um, one of my real frustrations with Daniel Goldman's work, as, as an example, you know, is, is the mm-hmm. is the first person I ever read on emotional intelligence. Part of me feels, you know, kind of almost uh, guilty about the fact that I, I then go on to so one of the, I think one of the biggest issues that he caused is that he lumped every emotion together into one and called it emotional yeah. intelligence. And for me, it's not yeah. like that. It's about emotion intelligence. It's being able to, to say, this is how, this is how I feel. 
you know, and, yeah. and sometimes that's about this is how I feel physically. You know, I, I, I feel hot, I feel cold, I feel knotty, I feel gnarly, I feel mm-hmm. um, aggravated, I feel meh, you know, or, you know, so I'm, I'm not overly, I'm not overly concerned with people necessarily, you know, using an accurate emotional label. Yeah. Um, but being able to just, you know, be emotional. Yeah, be, be, be emotion intelligent or emotion aware rather than emotionally intelligent or emotionally aware. Because it's all very well to go, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling emotional at the moment. And even then, if you use the word emotional, that has such strong implication with crying yeah. and sadness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and also some collocations as well. So if you look at linguistically, if you look at what sits around the word emotional sadness features more often than any other emotion, um, it, it, it collocates around it regularly. Um, but oh, yeah, I agree with you. But, yeah, being able to, or, or taking the time to name, not sorry, being able to, taking the time to name how you're feeling and be able to articulate that in some way, not in a, not necessarily an articulate or logical way, but just the physical articulation of it. What it is um, to you. Yeah, absolutely. And yes, I might look. You know, I might look at your face and go, "You know what? You say you're angry, but you actually look really sad." But that doesn't matter. You know, that's not that's not the point. My job isn't to go. Are you sure you're angry, or are you actually mad? <laughs> or to quote um, uh, the kids' kind of animation movie, "Home." Are you mad? Sad? Are you both mad and sad? Um, which is which is so right. Yeah. The other is, is we go. Oh, we'll put all into one emotion. We're not experiencing one emotion no. at a time. We can have so many emotions, which makes research really complex, particularly what, what you say is that and what you deepacting, what, what is it you're displaying? Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's a multitude which adds to the confusion within us. Mm. And just sitting down again, well, I feel this about this, I feel that about that, sometimes helps to separate and understand things and then process a bit more. Brilliant. So I smile a lot. Yeah, I'm scared. She said, grinning. People go, really? Really? Oh, SJ, thank you so much for your time today. Um, No, brilliant. Thoroughly, thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed um, our chat. I cannot wait to to hear more about how your PhD research, you know, kind of continues um, and then to see the to see you know, what you kind of pull together at the end and um, thank yeah, you. it's been oh. so much fun so much fun today thank, thank you very much and good luck to you i'm looking forward to you uh, joining us very yeah. soon at man i hope i hope so too fingers crossed fingers crossed all right so let's let's bring it together so thank you very much sj thanks for taking part in the emotional work podcast um for this episode and we'll put all the links to all the everything we've talked about the different studies the different researchers um and all that, all that stuff, and the books and everything, we'll, we'll pull that together. So if people want to go find, if listeners want to go find out more, then they can. But all that leads me to do is say, SJ, thank you so, so much for your time today. Thank you for speaking. It's uh, inviting me on. Brilliant. Thank all you right. very much. Thanks, Thanks SJ. Take care. Take care. Cheers. Cheers. Bye bye. You've been listening to the Emotional Work Podcast, written, recorded, and presented by Phil Wilcox, edited together by Simon Leverton. You can find more information at emotionatwork.co.uk or follow us on Twitter at at Phil Wilcox. Thanks for listening.